esteemed guests, members of the judiciary, sisters and brothers, you are all very welcome to our first virtual celebration of International Women's Day. My name is Aoife McNichol and I'm the current chair of the Equality and Resilience Committee in the Bar of Ireland. Although our celebration tonight is somewhat different to our usual evening in the King's Inns, I'm sure you'll agree that it's an event that has been highly anticipated. This year's theme for International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge. This is a very brave theme, I thought, given the challenges that have come our way this, in this last year. We had no idea of the chaos that was coming our way uh, when the former chair of this committee, Mo Flahev, addressed us last year in the King's Inns. I'm choosing to be an optimist, if only for this evening, in considering these challenges. For it is only when we are challenged that we have an opportunity to change and to grow, adapting in the face of adversity, of which we've seen plenty this year. We have seen the profession adapt, however, in ways that we didn't think was possible in such a short space of time. And now it is also an opportune time to reflect on what we can do to improve our prof profession for all, to challenge inequalities and biases that we experience, or perhaps more importantly, that we witness. This year, given our expanded audience, is an excellent opportunity to welcome our brothers at the bar to our annual celebration for the first time. I truly believe that equality can only be achieved when all members of the bar embrace it and support um, each other as colleagues. And although this celebration it promotes women, it also promotes and supports all areas in which we can strive for equality, which is an ongoing and developing process. It's five years since the Bar of Ireland held its first celebration of International Women's Day, and I thought it was a good opportunity to see what we've done since that time and how far we've come. Since then, we've seen consistent progress towards the ultimate goal of achieving equality at the Bar. One example of this is the election of our current chair of the Council of the Bar of Ireland, Maura McNally, Senior Counsel, who's only the second woman to hold that role. The Council's commitment to equality in access to the bar and for our members is borne out through the outstanding and cumulative work of my committee's predecessors. The Women at the Bar Working Group, led by Gráinne Larkin BL, commissioned the Women at the Bar survey, which was published in March of 2016. This provided the crucial data required to map out the huge task ahead. And one of the first steps taken was the development of the Law and Women Mentoring Programme, which started out as a collaboration between the Irish Women Lawyers Association, the Law Society and the Bar of Ireland. And this is now a permanent part of our policy and is growing in strength each year. The success and progress uh, made by the women at the Bar working with led to the establishing of a full committee at council level in 2018, which focused on promoting equality, diversity and inclusion at the Bar. And that was under the leadership of Mo Flahav BL, and that committee began work on a number of incredibly important initiatives, such as the Equitable Briefing Policy, the Equality Action Plan, and the Women on Walls in King's Inns. The now renamed or rebranded Equality and Resilience Committee, for which I have responsibility, is an amalgamation of two important committees, and we are continuing that important work. It's fair to say that this year's theme of choosing to challenge is apt considering the size of our agenda as well as the goals on that agenda. 
For example, the equitable briefing policy is challenging perceptions and practices we all have, and specifically around the area of briefing practices and indeed handing over briefs. Last year, the committee met with a number of state agencies, the state being the largest user of legal services in the country. And this year I've met with the largest solicitor firms. The response we received is really one of overwhelming enthusiasm and support. And a policy is now being developed in collaboration with those firms and state agencies. And we hope to complete and launch that before the end of this legal year. The Equality Action Plan, which has been developed by a working group within my committee, seeks to identify how we can do better at ensuring that we encourage a diverse and inclusive pool of people to consider a career at the bar. And in terms of, and more, I suppose more importantly, how to reach those people. In terms of gender, we have uh, the data to show that the, the numbers of men and women coming down to the bar over quite a number of um, years now is fairly evenly split. And so we want to develop our approach to further look at other groups who are who tend to be underrepresented, those with disabilities, those from ethnic minorities, or those who are neurodiverse. This plan again will hopefully be completed before the end of this legal year, which is a lofty goal, but hopefully we'll achieve it. And that's not to mention the other aspects of our agenda, such as the Dignity at Work protocol, which we launched earlier this year, which was an important piece of work and also um, a, a plan to rerun the Women at the Bar survey to see what the data shows and how things have changed. I suppose that's before mentioning anything to do with the other side of our brief, which is resilience. And ordinarily this celebration is all about equality and promoting women within our profession. However, in celebrating women, I, I believe that resilience is something that we need to embrace and support and promote. Um, this year, above all other years, where we've seen our personal and professional lives really turned upside down. And I, I think it's very important that we build resilience into our daily routine and indeed our practice management as professionals. And to promote that, we will be um, running resilience webinars, um, and which started in January and which will continue again next month. Finally, I'd like to extend a particular welcome and to express my sincere gratitude to our esteemed guest, Lady Brenda Hale. We had hoped to welcome you properly to the King's Inns uh, with a lovely uh, wine and perhaps G&T would, would have been uh, the first thing we would have offered you, but it wasn't to be this year and we're honoured that you could uh, take the time to join us. And I also like to thank our sister, Emer Woodfull, who will lead tonight's conversation with Lady Hale. And so without further ado from me, I will hand you over to the capable hands of Emer uh, to properly introduce this evening's event. Hello everyone, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you to Aoife particularly, and thank you to the Bar Council for inviting me to have the honour of chatting with Lady Hale, because it really is an honour to be doing this. Um, this woman certainly knows about resilience. Um, Aoife was talking there about adapting to adversity, as Lady Hale has in her own personal life, and she's also very definitely chosen to challenge very much in her own way. Um, she's a trailblazer, first all the way. It's a bit boggling when you read it, you go, wow. Um, starred first in Cambridge, first place in her class there, first place in her bar exams, first woman law reform member of the Law Reform Commission, uh, first female president of the UK Supreme Court, and the first woman law lord, and a really interesting one, one I liked, a quirky one, uh, the first judge, 
as far as I know, to ask that she be painted while smiling, which is sort of interesting. Um, and I emailed uh, Ursula Kilkelly, who's Professor of Law in UCC today, and she's a child law expert. And I said one sentence, I said, how would you describe Lady Hale? And she said, if I may read out our short email, Brenda is extraordinary, a quite exceptional combination of charisma, intellect and integrity. She never forgot her roots or what is important without a shred of judicial arrogance, staying true to her values and to where she came from. In my circle, children's rights, family law, she's quite simply a rock star, hugely popular and admired both professionally and personally. And that's all before you add in her feminist trailblazing. She regularly comes to and speaks at academic conferences, always keen to engage publicly about her work. Just fantastic. You're very welcome, Lady Hale. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am sure I won't be able to live up to that wonderful introduction. Oh, I've no doubts for you. No, no fear of you, as they say in Claire at all. Now, you've just taken a book off your shelf that I hadn't seen before, and it kind of says a lot about you because it's a children's book loosely based on your life about children going to the Supreme Court in the UK. If just might hold it up to let people see it, because I think it's kind of interesting. It's nice. So it's about equality and Judge Brenda and the Supreme Court. And let's see the children, because it's a lovely graphic of you, I think, all the little ones and you. So you definitely, I know you have always championed transparency. And I think that's kind of illustrative of, um, of that. Um, now, if you might tell me, I've just learned recently as well that you have very strong links with Ireland. Yes. Uh, I do indeed. Uh, I have two Irish grandchildren uh, who live down the road in, in Glenageary. Uh, they're aged uh, 16 and uh, nearly 13. Uh, and they are uh, my daughter's pride and joy and the pride and joy, of course, of their other mother and of all their grandparents. Um, we love them dearly. So, of course, I try and come to Ireland as often as I can so that I can see them. Um, unfortunately, I won't be able to come and see them uh, on this occasion, but perhaps if you ask me again, I'll be able to uh, come over well, and have another well, I, You will be asked again. I have no doubt about that at all. Now, I spoke about the adversity in your early life. You grew up in a family in Yorkshire that struck me as a pretty no-nonsense family. You were steeped in learning educated in a state school and then you suffered a very big and sudden loss when you were 13. If you might tell me a little bit about that. Yes, well, my father died uh, when I was 13. My younger sister was 12 and it was completely unexpected. You know, he had a heart attack, was taken into hospital, didn't survive more than 48 hours. Um, so it was a huge shock, of course, principally for our mother. Uh, because we were always brought up to believe that theirs was the greatest love affair of all time. And actually, I think it probably was. Uh, and she was totally bereft. But what she then did was roll up her sleeves, pick herself up, dust off the teaching qualifications which she had had to uh, more or less abandon when she married my father, because in the 1930s, there was a, a marriage ban for, for teachers. Uh, and got herself a job as head teacher of the local village primary school, the school to which my sister and I had both gone, which was wonderful for us because it meant we could stay living in the same village with the same friends, go to the same school 
and not have a, a hugely disrupted life. Which So I always say that my mother was my first role model for a strong-minded, independent, resilient uh, woman. Good example thereof. Um, a wonderful example, it sounds. And it sounds like it was a home where it was all hands on deck then. Oh, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> I hope that we were helpful uh, in such matters as uh, as looking after ourselves and doing some cooking and so on, uh, because she did work extremely hard. Teachers do work extremely hard. I think most people don't realise that. Uh, but certainly if my family was anything to go by, both my father and my mother worked extremely hard. And no doubt that's something that I picked up from them. Now, I don't know what was in the ether in your house, but it produced three head girls. How did that come about? It was a very small school, you know. No, no <laughs> not buying that. Nice <laughs> try. Nice try. <laughs> it is true. It is true that there were three Hale sisters. My older sister, who's eight years older than I am, uh, me and my younger sister. And we did all become head girl of Richmond High School for girls. Um, I, I was a, a, not their first choice as head girl. I was only head girl in my third year in the sixth form. Um, whether that was because they didn't think my qualities of leadership were quite good enough or whether they wanted me to concentrate on my academic work uh, so that I would get into Oxford or Cambridge, which was the school's principal focus of ambition for me. And even as it was some time ago, but there were very high expectations for all of you girls, weren't there? We were all expected to go to university, which when we're talking about now the late 50s, early 60s, uh, only about four and a half percent of the age group went to university. And of that, uh, two thirds were, were young men and a third were young women. So half the number of women were going to university as men. So it was quite, um, quite an ambitious uh, aim uh, for the daughters. But I'm not sure that we knew quite how ambitious it was. It was just taken for granted that we would do it if we could. Mm. And um, if I'm correct, your head teacher wasn't too keen on you doing what you wanted to do. Well, uh, it's always a question. What are you going to study at university? Uh, and the obvious answer was history because it was the subject that I liked the best and on the whole as I always say to people it's a good idea to do what you enjoy doing because then you'll be good at it and work hard at it um, but my headmistress was a historian and I'm fond of saying that she thought I wasn't quite clever enough to read history <laughs> so she started looking around for something else that I might do uh, and she suggested economics for some unknown reason and I suggested law uh, and to her credit because she wasn't a very adventurous woman, really, for her girls. Uh, she didn't say nonsense. Girls don't do law or nobody in the school has ever done law before. So how on earth are we going to be able to do that? She actually said that's a good idea. Um, and she gave me every encouragement to press ahead uh, with attempting to study law. And I think we were both right. I think you were. Definitely both right. Um, so that's interesting. You've had two female role models, your mother, who is very strong, and your head teacher as well, guiding you at a bend in the road. Maybe a bend you didn't particularly want to go on, but you did anyway. To great oh, I did, want to, I did want to go on it. I was very happy because 
even before that, I had taken a huge interest in the British Constitution and the history of the 17th century, which is when we had our revolution, uh, which a lot of people don't understand. You know, we had a rebellion, we had a restoration and we had a revolution. Um, and uh, that whole history had fascinated me and the role of the courts and the lawyers in that revolution. Uh, uh, wonderful cases uh, that have been decided by very brave judges uh, during that century. So I think that's what had really sparked my interest in the wow. law. It's the history route that sparked your interest in. Yes, that's right. Interesting. And then you went to Cambridge where in your usual way, you left everybody in your wake pretty much. Well, you did. You were starred first top of the class and there were mainly men, boys they would have been called, I suppose, at that point. But you, you left them in your trail. Well, there were there were six of us in my year who started reading law and uh, six women and over 100 men. So we were a little bit thin on the ground. Um, but we were we were on the whole, at least I certainly was a specky swat as I had been at school and I continued to be a specky swat at university. Um, and of course, because I enjoyed it, I worked hard at it uh, and um, and I seem to have something of an aptitude for it. You don't know before you start reading law whether you're going to be good at it. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very different skill from everything else that you do at school. Uh, but it turned out that I could actually get the hang of it. So, yes. Well, I don't think you were just totally a specky swat with respect because I read in Vogue magazine that one of your challenges you set yourself in Lent was to sign out as you did in the day in Cambridge and go up the town every night during Lent. Tell me about yeah. that then. <laughs> well, this is true. I did have, um, it was one of the Lent terms, which half of which is Lent and the other half is not, um, that I thought to myself, Yes, we had to sign out uh, Girton College in those days if we wanted to be back between 10.30 and midnight. Everybody had to be back by midnight, the men and the women. Uh, it was a university rule. But in Girton, we had to sign out if we wanted to be uh, out after 10.30. And it was my ambition that I would have a good enough social life to be signing out every night of the term for that term. And yes, I, I achieved that. <laughs> I have no doubt you did, especially with those batting averages of six to 110. Exactly. You go too far wrong, really, even yes. on a bad day, even on a bad hair day. Now, you then considered you um, I think you considered becoming a solicitor, but you'd opted not to do that. And you became a law lecturer, ultimately becoming a professor of law at Manchester University. Why did you make that choice? Well, I toyed first with becoming a barrister. Um, but at that stage got the impression uh, that it was a good idea to have uh, well-found contacts in order to become a barrister. It wasn't actually necessary in the 1960s and 70s, but it was the impression that one got. And then I toyed with, I, I worked in solicitor's offices during my vacations, which I think is a very good idea, give you some idea of what practice is like. Um, and I uh, spent one long vac working in our local firm of solicitors in Richmond and another working in a magic circle firm in the city of London. I didn't fancy either of those. So when my results were so good academically, I decided I would go and teach law at Manchester. But the reason for choosing Manchester was that they wanted me to qualify as a barrister. 
and practice part time as well as teaching. So I had the best of both worlds uh, and uh, did that for a few years, uh, both teaching and practicing. And I have read, if it's correct, that part of your choice was influenced by wishing to have a family and not wishing to go to the bar because of all of the obvious difficulties that young women face at the bar in that regard. Well, um, I was at the bar for a few years, but the reason that I chose to leave the bar and concentrate on the academic career was that it is much easier to combine an academic career with having a family. It's possible to do it at the bar. There were prominent successful women at the Manchester Bar who were doing it, but I combined that problem with the fact that my husband was also starting at the Manchester Bar. We had narrowly avoided being on opposite sides of the same case, rather too often for comfort. And more importantly, university lecturers get paid. They don't actually get paid a lot, but they do get paid every month and there is sick leave, maternity leave, a pension and so on. Whereas barristers often have to wait a very long time to be paid and they have to make their own sickness, uh, pension arrangements and the like. Uh, and so it seemed a good idea if one of us was doing one and one of us was doing the other. So if you put those things all together, it made it really the obvious choice. Yeah, yes, yeah. I, I can see how it would make it the obvious choice. And from young women I've spoken to, that's still very much an active issue. And I found it interesting looking at the British NSO statistics recently for during lockdown, that they're saying that the women, even when both partners are working, it was the young women who took more childcare rearing responsibility in the home, even during lockdown, even now. Yes, that's, that's a true. And of course, it's not only childcare, but while the schools are shut, it's homeschooling yes, as well, yes, yes, it's uh, which adds uh, and that on top of working from home is putting very difficult burdens on a lot of people with families, especially. It, it very, very much so. And you, when you, you did the bar, of course, by correspondence course, yeah. and you, again, mm. surprise, surprise, you came first place in the bar exam, final exams, yet again. Well, yes, but I, <laughs> I have to say that the bar exams in those days were very easy. I bought a self-tuition correspondence course and they sent me um, some nutshells. You know what everybody, oh, yes, lawyers yes, know what a nutshell is, and some <laughs> model exam papers and some model answers. And I spent probably about eight weeks swatting in my attic flat in Manchester uh, and came top of the list. So it just shows just how easy the bar exams then were. They are no longer as easy as that. I'm not quite buying that, but anyway, we'll move along. I think you, you're obviously very, very bright and you have a, you're a fantastic SWAT as well, but you're obviously very, very talented. And um, you then moved to the Law Reform Commission and you were the first woman in there, I think at the age of uh, 39, and you were, largely credited, you got huge credit with, in, with regard to the Children Act. Well, yes, the Children Act was a joint effort between the Law Commission and the Department of Health because they were responsible for the law relating to children um, in need uh, who might need to be protected by the state or have services from the state. Uh, we in the Law Commission were responsible for 
the law about children's upbringing uh, in their families. And we, so we had a joint project and we were able to bring the two areas of law together to make a single coherent whole uh, with the same remedies in every court, because probably similarly in Ireland, uh, it will have been. We had magistrates court with one set of remedies and we had divorce courts with another set of remedies and we had the high court with yet another set of remedies. Uh, and the uh, principles were different as between those different jurisdictions. It was basically one law for the poor and one law for the not poor. Uh, and we managed to bring all of those principles and remedies together, give all the courts the same jurisdiction. So that was what the Children Act was about. And it's yes, still going sorry. strong after 30 years. Yes, and it brought about profound change, very definitely. Um, and then um, you then moved, you then didn't take somebody's advice, your mentor's advice, when you were thinking of moving towards the judiciary and become a recorder, which I understand is like a part-time circuit court judge here. Mm. And he advised you, said, don't do this, stay in academia. And you said no, for once you didn't take advice. Well, <laughs> uh, it wasn't really my mentor. Um, in those days, judicial appointments were done by the tap on the shoulder. You know, I was invited to go and see a senior official in the Lord Chancellor's department. Uh, and he asked me whether I would like to become an assistant recorder, which is, as you say, a part time um, circuit judge in mm. Crown and County Courts doing both civil and criminal cases. And um, I went back to Manchester and there were four professors and I asked the professors what they thought of the idea. And two of them said, Oh, no, 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 be too much of a distraction from your academic career. And the other two said, go for it, girl. So I would have gone for it anyway. Yeah. But you were always a go for it girl, I think. I don't think you saw obstacles because when I was looking at a BBC journalist, he was doing a tour of the uh, rooms where you made the prorogation judgment that we'll come to in a moment. And he, he said you were explaining that when you're when the Supreme Court is making a decision that the most junior judge goes first to say what they think. And he said, oh, that must be terrifying. And you said, oh, not at all. It's a wonderful opportunity to show how much you know. So um, I don't think you see obstacles. I think you see opportunity. Well, yes, but I would confess to being very nervous. Ah. Uh, usually when I start out on something that I'm not uh, familiar with. So I think every barrister is nervous before they go into court. It is a terrifying experience sometimes. I mean, it varies. Uh, and if you don't have a certain amount of stage fright, you're probably not going to do the best you can for your clients. It's got to be that right level of stage fright that gets the adrenaline going without paralyzing you. Um, and then when I started out as a baby judge, I certainly was uh, very aware of how easy it was to put a foot wrong, especially in a criminal trial. I was much more comfortable in civil and family cases where the judge is much more in charge. Um, I was more comfortable, but in criminal cases, I was definitely not very comfortable. So, yes, I think I do see obstacles. I do get uh, scared. I was definitely scared when I went to the Law Commission because it was full of all these hugely learned and clever people. Um, and I wondered whether I could keep up with them. 
but you've got to give it a go, haven't you? And see whether you can. And if you can't, well, OK, yeah. uh, find something better to do, find something you're better at. Uh, but definitely give it a go if it looks interesting and exciting, as everything I've been asked to do has done. Well, it was a good way to live because it brought you all the way to being the first woman president of the UK Supreme Court. You always rose to the top. <laughs> it could just be Buggins' turn, you know. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, and um, you definitely have qualities. You have that resilience and determination. I've read where you've said that, which I found very interesting. I'd say if you went for interviews when they said, where do you want to be in 10 years time or five years time? I'm not sure what your answer would have been because you always said that you didn't particularly look for anything, but you did whatever you were doing as best as you could. Mm -hmm. And doors happened to open and you took those doors opportunities when the door opened. Would that Absolutely. be right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I didn't necessarily have a, a master plan, although I think when I got myself comfortable with each step along the way, I did start asking myself, well, what's next? So when I was in the High Court in the Family Division uh, and felt I did know how to do that, uh, I was thinking, well, it would be good to be in the Court of Appeal, greater variety of work, you know, much more law, um, fewer terrible situations having to take children away from their families and all of the things that you have to do in family law. Um, so in a way, less emotionally pressurising, more legally pressurising. So I did want to get to the Court of Appeal. And when I was in the Court of Appeal, of course, we hadn't had a woman law lord and people started to say, well, oh, Brenda, don't you think um, it's time we had a woman law lord? Do you think you might be it? Um, and again, it was a terrifying thought, uh, but uh, I was hoping that that was what would happen, and eventually it did. And here you are. <laughs> and um, if I may come now to what I'm going to call your four desert island cases, you picked oh. three and I picked one. Um, we'll start with your first one, I know, which was yours, which is the prorogation, the seminal judicial review, um, Miller versus the Prime Minister. And that was just a, such a legal standout moment in 2019. And um, I know you've said it wasn't a source of pride, but was of satisfaction. Tell mm. me a little bit about that and how you reached that decision. Well, of course, we had to reach it in an enormous hurry. Because the whole point was that the Prime Minister had advised Her Majesty to suspend Parliament for five out of the eight weeks that were available to sort things out before the exit day, which would otherwise definitely happen on the 31st of October. So the whole thing had to be done at an enormous lick if it was going to be of any help at all. We had inconsistent decisions. The High Court in England had said one thing, they'd said it's not justiciable. The Court of Session in Scotland had said, of course it's justiciable, and what's more, it's unlawful. So whereas the Scottish Court had said, Parliament has not been prorogued, the English Court had said, it has. Well, they couldn't both be right. So that was what made it inevitable that we took the case, inevitable that we had to decide the case very quickly. Uh, and that was the great challenge and the great source of satisfaction 
that we managed to get it on, we managed to hear it, we managed to decide uh, bef before the end of the final day what we thought the answer was. It was pretty clear it was going to be unanimous. Uh, and then uh, Lord Reed and I went away over the weekend to write the judgment. Uh, and then we circulated it round and everybody um, you know, had their thoughts on it and made helpful comments about it. And so we were ready, having finished the hearing on the Thursday, to give judgment on the Tuesday. Now, all of that is a source of satisfaction in what the court managed to achieve. So very different from its normal way of going on. Uh, and, uh, and it was 11 of us, not just the usual five or even seven or nine. It was 11, which is the maximum number of serving judges we could have sitting. So that added to the satisfaction that everybody had been pulling together, doing their best to make a good job of it. And I think a, a good job you certainly made of it. And you, I think if uh, you ask people to write on two sides of an A4 page, would that be correct, the judges to put the thoughts down in a succinct way? That's right, because normally what we do is have a meeting immediately after the hearing and we go around the table, starting with the junior one, as uh, you mentioned, uh, and everybody says what they think the, the answer is with briefish reasons from which it usually becomes apparent what the answer is going to be, what the outcome is going to be, uh, if not necessarily all the full reasoning. But in this case, because of the need for speed, um, we had identified that there were four issues. Was, was it justiciable? Something that the courts could rule on. If it was justiciable, what were the standards to be applied to the decision? And uh, thirdly, how did those standards fit the facts of this case, or at least what we knew of the facts of this case, what had been put before us in evidence. Uh, and if, according to those standards, the advice was unlawful, what was the remedy? Uh, so four questions, two sides of A4, everybody circulated a paper, and I say it became pretty apparent uh, that we were all thinking along very similar lines. Mm. And so people who were watching carefully will have realised on the final day that we were asking the parties for much fuller submissions on the remedies. Actually, the BBC reporter, uh, Clive Coleman, did realise that. Uh, the penny dropped with him, definitely, uh, because why would we be asking for more detailed submissions on the remedies if we hadn't uh, cleared, or at least provisionally cleared, the first three hurdles? Um, and. Uh, we did get some help eventually with the remedies uh, and uh, that's why we were able to do as we did. Um, so. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. And you can see your clarity there and the workmanlike way you went about reaching that decision, mm. which is interesting. Now I'm going to skip along if I may. And actually at the time, the context, it was so important because the independence of the judiciary in the UK it, it was coming under such vicious attack in the media. When I was looking back at the Daily Mail headlines, you had the, the High Court judges, they were, it was a front page, they were emblazoned on the front, enemies of the people. Mm. And one of the writing of one of the High Court judges being an openly gay, ex-Olympic, boxer or fencer, which J.K. Rowling said was he sounds like he had a great life and um, he'd really been successful. Um, but they were trying to diminish and demean so much so that the Lord Chief Justice uh, sought security, which he'd never done before. Such was the pressure mm. around you at that point. Well, that was not at that point. That was the earlier Miller case. Yes. 
not the prorogation case. In fact, um, although, I mean, there was still a huge um, mm. media storm going on, it wasn't quite as vitriolic in the mainstream media. And we judges tend not to do uh, social media. So whatever might be going on in the Twitter sphere, uh, I'm afraid uh, we don't know about it, which I think is probably a good thing because we have to do our judging according to how judging is done. We do what is right to all manner of people after the laws and usages of this realm without fear or favour, affection or ill will. That's what we do or try to do. Uh, and to be too conscious of what is going on around one from other sources is not a good thing. So. And it's hard to, because you're people, judges are people, to, to stay away, to, to stand back and not be affected by what's being written and said about you at the same time. Well, I suppose so, but you can, you, you don't read too much of it then, I think. Now, well, not until afterwards. Not until not afterwards. afterwards. Now, I'm watching the clock here and I'm, I know the other three judgments, there was one about a Tanzanian mother who was going to be deported. I think that was your second favourite judgment. And the other one then was coercive control, uh, which is very interesting and which, of course, is now the law here as well. Tell me briefly about those two, if you may. Well, the, the deportation of them, it was the deportation of the mother which meant that her two British citizen children who'd been born, brought up, gone to school here, had all their whole life here, would have had to go with her because there was nobody else to look after them. And they would lose their whole lives and all the benefits of being a British citizen. Uh, and we held that the government had to give first priority to their interests, their best interests, when making the decision. They weren't necessarily the paramount consideration, but they were to be the first priority. And so the children had to stay. And it meant, of course, their mother had to stay, although she had a hugely um, adverse uh, immigration record. The coercive control case was a case about whether violence meant hitting or threatening to hit, or whether it could be broader, or whether it could include other forms of abuse which put people in fear uh, of harm. Uh, and we held that it was a wider definition uh, of violence. Mm. This was back in 2011, uh, before it became a specific mm. uh, offence. But what it meant in that case was that the woman who had fled the family home with her children because of her fear of her husband uh, was entitled to rehousing by the local authority, which is just as important as um, making it a criminal offence. So you know, I'm quite pleased with both of those uh, uh, decisions. Uh, looking at it from the point of view of the weaker members of the family, the children uh, or the or the women in that particular case. Yes, and they had a very, a very significant impacts as well. And then the case, um, the one I'm going to mention is what's loosely called the gay wedding cake case from mm. Northern Ireland. That was interesting, the um, Lee versus Asher's Baking Company, that one, if you can mm. talk a little bit about that. Well, that was very interesting because uh, Mr. Lee was, was a gay man who supported the campaign for gay marriage in Northern Ireland. And he went into uh, a well-known baker's shop where they did bespoke cakes and said, I would like a cake with this design iced on it, uh, which included support gay marriage and uh, two cartoon characters. Uh, and the bakery 
initially accepted the order, but then they went away and thought about it, and they were very uh, devout Christians uh, who believed that the only form of marriage acceptable to God was between a man and a woman, and that therefore they couldn't reconcile it with their consciences to produce such a cake. So they they gave him back his money and he got it done by another bakery. But the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission, I'm not sure that's quite what its name is in Northern Ireland. Anyway, they supported him to bring a claim of discrimination. And we decided that he hadn't been discriminated against because he was a gay man. If I'd gone in and asked for that cake, which I might well have done because I do support gay marriage, um, they would have refused uh, to make it for me as well. Uh, and so it wasn't discrimination against him or indeed against anyone with whom he was associated. Uh, it was a little bit more complicated uh, because they also claimed uh, discrimination uh, in relation to his, his views or indeed their views. Uh, and that's a specific uh, question in Northern Ireland. Uh, but in relation to that, we held that uh, you had to read that prohibition in the light of the European Convention uh, protection for uh, people's uh, freedom of expression. And freedom of expression includes the freedom not to say things that you don't believe in. The freedom not to be obliged to say something uh, that is contrary to your deepest beliefs. Uh, and so for both of those reasons, uh, we held that they uh, were not guilty of unlawful discrimination. Um, and frankly, we found that um, most of the gay community understood the difference between an objection to the person and an objection to the message on a cake. Yes, yes. Uh, and were not deeply uh, unhappy about it. And obviously there's room for argument in any of our cases. Uh, but on the whole, we found that people did understand that distinction because, of course, I'm extremely uh, committed to equality and non-discrimination um, on any of the protected characteristics that we have in, in the UK, uh, but sexual orientation being one of them. Uh, but you, it does the cause of equality no good if you actually take it too far, uh, and particularly if it conflicts with the equally important rights of other people. Yes, and, and you've spoken a lot about that, and you have a, a diversity is is certainly uh, something you're very interested in in the judiciary, mm. and also transparency in terms of the judiciary. You yes. would be an absolute flag bearer for that, wouldn't you? Yes, definitely, for diversity along all sorts of dimensions. Um, uh, not just gender. I mean, gender is the most important because we are half the human race and we are um, increasingly half of the legal profession. So uh, if the judiciary is overwhelmingly male, which it no longer is in, in the UK, and I don't think it is in Ireland either, uh, but it has been, well, then that is just not right. It's, it's not right from a democratic point of view. It's not right from a an appearance of justice, fairness and equality point of view. It's not even right from the quality of the decision making point of view. So there are all sorts of reasons why it's not right. Um, and but it's also important that the ethnic diversity of the community be properly reflected. And it's still that's we've still a long way to go in that direction.
uh, in the UK. Uh, and you may have in Ireland too, I don't know. Um, oh, yes. And there are other dimensions. There are other dimensions. I don't think we do too badly um, now on disability, not too badly. Um, you know, it would have been unthinkable when I was at the Law Commission. Uh, we had a, a another law commissioner who had multiple sclerosis and eventually was in a wheelchair. And it was taken for granted that he couldn't become a High Court judge, although he was the sort of person who otherwise would have been, whereas now that would definitely not be the case. Uh, we have had blind judges uh, and judges with other sorts of disability. So I hope that that is not the obstacle that once it was. But ethnicity is still a serious difficulty. Uh, and that is partly because you cannot regard all ethnicities as the same. You know, they can't be lumped into one box labelled BAME. Uh, and you know that is the BAME problem. It's it's not it because there are uh, African Caribbeans, there are Africans, there are people of South Asian heritage, there are people of East Asian heritage, and the obstacles that they face uh, in the United Kingdom are very different from community to community, uh, and so. We have to see what we can do to try and solve those. And I've no doubt you will do that. I'm coming near the end of my time. And I just want to say, um, I know you're not retiring. You're meant to be, but I don't think you are. You're a law lord for a start. I think you're cracking the IT system there at the moment. Um, <laughs> so you're going to be a law lord and you're going to be actively going into the House of Lords. I think you're the only woman law lord. No, um, I was the only woman law lord. And ah. the reason that the um, top court in the United Kingdom was uh, a committee of the House of Lords. That is the reason why I am a member of the House of Lords. And I am, now I've stopped being a full-time judge, I am entitled to take part in the parliamentary business. I haven't yet done so, but that's largely because of lockdown and the fact that I'm here in North Yorkshire and Parliament happens to be in a place called Westminster, you know, so. The House of Lords has has gone in for hybrid proceedings uh, very successfully, uh, but I don't feel yet sufficiently accomplished uh, to uh, to take part in them. But I will do in due course. I, I have no doubt. And I've had plenty of other things to do while I've been. Like what? Oh, well, I've been writing my memoirs. Um, so uh, that that's quite a time consuming task and um, it's it's a, quite an enjoyable task, but it's also quite challenging. Uh, yes, feats of memory <laughs> for a start. Uh, hopefully avoiding self delusion. Um, you know, uh, trying to be honest about oneself uh, and, uh, and so on. And also trying to tell a story which will be of interest to people other than lawyers. You know, that's the idea that people who are not lawyers would also find it interesting and amusing and entertaining. Um, you know, it's much easier to write for lawyers than it is to write for non-lawyers. And if you're trying to write for non-lawyers, but still keep the lawyers interested, you know, that's the trick, that's the difficulty. So I'm doing my best. I, you're doing your best. You sounded Yorkshire there and doing the best. You, the bit of the Yorkshire right. came out doing there. Doing best. Your old right. accent came out. Um, but I've no doubt you'll do you'll do spectacularly well. I look forward to reading. Just one thing before I move to questions is your daughter. She's also a trailblazer. She's just been made um, managing director of the London Stock Exchange. 
Yes, chief executive. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, she has. Uh, she she went into um, investment banking as her career and did that for quite a long time, including running an investment bank here in Ireland um, back in the day. But of course, that all uh, got a little bit um, kiboshed by the financial crisis. Uh, so she came back to London to carry on there. And then she went to work into regulating investment bankers uh, in the Financial Conduct Authority, which is our regulator. Uh, and she moved into market oversight from that. And now she's going to be um, chief executive of the London Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty proud of her. <laughs> Um, with, with very good reason, with every very good reason. Now, a question somebody asked me earlier today to ask, what do you think makes a good judge? Well, there are several things. Uh, number one, I think, is brains. You actually <laughs> have to be, you actually have to be quite intelligent, um, because there's a lot of material to get through. There's a lot to understand, and you've got to try and do it quite quickly. Number two is the ability to listen to other people. To try and listen with a straight face. But I find that very difficult. You may have noticed my face is not often straight, um, but certainly to listen and to be calm and patient. And to try not to make up your mind too soon. But you must be able to make up your mind. It's almost the first thing that people expect of a judge. I don't know whether you have them in Ireland, but undoubtedly in England, we have had judges who found it very, very difficult to make up their minds. But that's what we're paid to do. However hard the decision is, you've got to be prepared to make it and not to put it off too long, just to knuckle down and make it. So that's what I'd say. Brains, patience, listening, decision. And there you are again with that nice clarity. And um, you came not from uh, really the bar, well, somewhat, but mainly from academia. Someone else had asked a senior counsel email me today saying, ask her, does she think more judges should come from academia or should they be from the bar or what? Or, what served you best from your very myriad career in making you the judge that you are? Well, I, I think that one can look for judges in many more places than the bar. Uh, there are an awful lot of law jobs about. You know, there are obviously barristers, there are solicitors. Outside the self-employed uh, legal profession, there are people who work in the government legal service or other public sector legal jobs. There's a lot of um, law jobs in, in regulation these days because we have an awful lot of regulators, not just the Financial Conduct Authority. And then, of course, there's um, in-house counsel in bar, commerce and industry. And a lot of those are women. Who found it easier to combine those careers with family responsibilities than to combine self-employed practice with family responsibilities. And I am quite convinced that amongst those women who left the self-employed practice and went into other jobs, there will be people who would make extremely good judges. 
I think in particular, if you've been in the government legal service, your job is to be good at the law, to be good at litigate. Well, sometimes to be good at litigation. Not everybody's a litigator and to be prepared to tell truth to power. Because that's their job to tell the civil servants and the ministers that they can't do that because it's against the law uh, or will get them into trouble. Or whatever, you know, it'll be difficult. Uh, and so uh, I do think that we should be looking for, for judges in a wider range of, of, of places. Um, uh, uh, law teaching is, is one of those, but uh, and being a law teacher does teach you to be decisive. There's nothing that teaches you decision making, uh, quick decision making better than having to mark exams. It also teaches you to deal with some uh, clever people, some bright young things. Uh, and you can usually tell when they're telling the truth or not, which is quite an important skill for judges to have. Um, so it does bring certain things with it, uh, but not everybody is going to like the business of judging uh, as well as they like the business of, of academic law, research, writing and teaching. Uh, it's not for everybody. So uh, I wouldn't say that we should necessarily have more academics. I say we should have a greater diversity of professional experience on the bench. Because the more diversity you have, the better the decision making is. Indeed, yeah, for sure. And I know when Ruth Bader Ginsburg and you, I, I know you've shared conference podiums and I think she had said uh, that her great aspiration or her aim was really to bring about change and make things better. But I think you said was to be honest, that was the most important thing to you, if I'm correct. Well, obviously, one wants to bring about change uh, if you see things that are wrong. There are limits to what judges can do to bring about change. In many ways, as a promoter of law reform, one could bring about more change than you can as a judge deciding an individual case. If you think about it, the prorogation case was hugely important in constitutional terms, but it didn't make a lot of difference to what happened next. In fact, it made very little difference to what happened next, whereas one or two of the other decisions have made a difference to what happened next. Um, the, the, the other two I was talking about have made a difference. Uh, so sometimes you can, but you can't always do it. You have got to be true to your task as a job, judge, which is to judge according to law. It isn't to make it up as you're going along. No, and I accept that while you are not making it up as you go along, obviously, although you could, um, and just to, to apply the law to the facts. But behind all that, um, we all come to everything with the biases that we carry. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting area, the independence of the judiciary and then the checks and balances and accountability. How do you resolve that tension? Well, the great thing about uh, being a judge, especially in the uh, higher courts, is that you have to explain yourself. You have to give a reasoned judgment. Um, in the family division, a lot of the time it was extempore because people needed a decision very quickly. But even so, uh, it was a reasoned judgment. Uh, and obviously uh, in the Supreme Court, it's always a, a written judgment. And 
if you can't explain yourself in writing in a way that firstly explains to the parties or at least their lawyers why somebody has won and somebody has lost and makes sense to the appeal court so that they also agree uh, with the conclusion that you have reached or at least don't want to disturb it and also to the wider legal community which is going to read the case if you can't do that well then it's not going to be a good decision is it so that's the great accountability obviously when you get to the supreme court there isn't a higher court apart from parliament parliament can always change our decision if it wants to do so if it doesn't like the way we have decided a point of law parliament can reverse us basically wouldn't usually do so retrospectively but it can for the future um, so we, there is always a court of appeal basically yes and, and i think that's what happened then if i'm correct after the prorogation judgment the law was changed a couple of months later isn't that correct uh no not not the law in relation to the prorogation no no. I thought there had been some change in relation to that. There had been some political um, executive oh. change brought about. Oh no! Oh no! In effect, uh, the the decision was effective in the sense that uh, Parliament was not prorogued. They went back yes, and they delayed Brexit in order for things to be uh, a proper withdrawal agreement to be negotiated. And a withdrawal agreement was negotiated. Yes. Uh, and so on and so forth. So, uh, no, uh, that was not changed. Um, oh, no, I didn't mean that. I thought there was legislative change. Later. No, 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 it's not been legislative change. No, no. That's what I read, which obviously isn't correct. Um, well, I, I don't believe that there has been legislative change. There yeah. are various legislative changes being discussed at the moment. Uh, ah. But we shall wait and see. Um, that might. Just as we are near International Women's Day still, I heard at a seminar recently where somebody said men are hired for their potential and women are hired for their experience. What would you say to that? Oh. Well, I have no idea whether that's correct. Um, what do you think? <laughs> uh, but um, I would hope that both are hired for their potential and that experience sometimes is a useful guide to potential, but not always. Sometimes there are other things than experience which may be a useful guide uh, to potential. Um, and I, th there are various things that are said about uh, the biases of selectors, uh, recruiters, and how they look at men and how they look at women. There are, there are various tropes about that. Uh, and insofar as they do look differently at them, well, then that's something they've got to be. Um, educated out of, haven't they? Um, yes, ver very definitely so. And I wonder, do you think, I remember a judge once saying to me that she felt when she had been a senior counsel that she had got more detailed work and women get more of the detailed work. Some of the men get the broader strokes work. What would you say to that? <laughs> that well, I don't know. Um, I, my observation, especially of the property and commercial bar is which are more men than women is that they all love the detail ah they get stuck into the detail and sometimes 
they think they can pull the wool over the judge's eyes with the detail. And if you stand back, the issue is actually quite a simple one and the arguments are quite simple. And if you go straight to those, uh, the issue and the arguments, you can see the answer without the trees. The many, many trees that have been both literally and metaphorically felled uh, in order to uh, for the parties to litigate the point. Um, I, I've had several examples of that. Well, so I don't, I, think I, it's a gen I don't think it's a gender thing. I think there are men who thrive on, on what they can accomplish with detail just as much as women. Interesting. Well, I need to be a brave man or woman who would try to pull the wool over your eyes. I don't think they'd get very far. Oh, I expect you'd find somebody at the uh, <laughs> at the London bar who said, oh, yes, well, I managed to put something past Lady Hill. Um, no, I think the only good. one who might succeed at that might be one of your grandchildren. They might have a good go. <laughs> they might know a way around you. <laughs> we might be off guard. Well, I've come to the end, unless there's any questions that I don't know if there are any more questions um, that anybody wishes to ask. Um, I'm not seeing a chat feed, but um, I don't know if there is. Um, actually, sorry, I'm now seeing that it's not coming up on my screen for some reason. Um, oh, yeah. OK, here we go. I'll start with her. She's the boss woman, Maura McNally, SE. <laughs> President of the Bar Council. Um, where can we each get the infamous spider brooch, Lady Hale? <laughs> well, do you know that infamous spider brooch came from Cards Galore, which is a card shop with oh. many branches around the UK. Many branches, I like it. Many branches, yes. Um, uh, my husband got it for me and I, he told me he thought it was £12. Um, but they don't seem to be doing it anymore. Uh, unlike the people who instantly produced a T-shirt. Exactly. With a sparkly spider on it, um, who raised quite a lot of money for a good charity uh, by doing that. Uh, so definitely Cards Galore hasn't caught on. <laughs> No, but maybe maybe there's a market there for it yet. I'm so sorry to all of you. I'm just seeing your messages for some reason. Uh, it didn't come up on my screen on the chat. And now I have it on my phone, which I'm holding in the other hand at the same time. So I'm driving and reading the phone at the same time, folks. Um, um, Neve Highland asks, uh, the age limit for judges in the UK has just been extended to 75 because of a crisis in the recruitment of judges. Oh, I hadn't known about that. That's interesting. What is the cause of this? Well, I don't think that they have yet extended it. They're thinking of extending it. Of course, we went from a situation where there was no age limit, then to a situation where the age limit was 75. And that's what it was when I was first appointed. So my age limit was 75. And then it went down to 70. And it stayed at 70. Uh, and it is still 70, although you can sit between 70 and 75 if there's a special case made for it. And they're thinking about putting the age up uh, because they have had a problem of uh, recruiting. They were reluctant to do that because they thought that if there are too many older people hanging on, that's going to reduce the vacancies for the younger and more diverse candidates. So they were bothered about putting it back up. 
But there was a stage where they were having difficulty in recruiting, especially to the High Court. Um, and so that's when they started to think seriously about putting it back up so as to attract people who would reached a different stage in their careers and might be ready basically to make less money. Because the problem was not only the salary. I mean, to my mind, the salary is a generous one and I've always felt perfectly uh, comfortable with it. Uh, but uh, they did change the pension rules and they changed the pension rules for people who were already in post. Which uh, basically did destroy trust. And so it meant that for a time there were, you know, the good people were not wanting to go on the High Court bench. Uh, we've had some very good recruits to the High Court bench recently. Um, so possibly that problem is, is, is not as acute as once it was. But the whole judiciary was affected by the pension change, which was. Um, oh, um, now, the anonymous one have you found that male barristers have, on average, much more confidence and less self doubt than female barristers? <laughs> she laughs. Well, I'm <laughs> laughing because, as a judge, you're just looking at them and listening to them, aren't you? And they all have to appear confident when they appear in court, whether they're male or female. They've all got different styles, you know, some are quiet, some are loud, uh, some are quick, some are slow, uh, some appear to be hesitant but actually aren't, and some appear to be confident but actually aren't, you know, that we've got all sorts of styles of advocacy. And I wouldn't associate any one style more with men than with women or the other way around, frankly. Uh, I think advocacy is something where everybody has their own style uh, and they should they should have and they should be true to that style. So I wouldn't want to be too sexist about that. OK, no, I, I don't I don't think you ever would be. Um, and some, here's an interesting question. What advice would you give your 13 year old self? Well, it's the advice I would have given. I would give somebody else, which is enjoy what you're doing try and do things that you enjoy because if you enjoy them you will work hard at them and if you work hard at them you are likely to be the best you can be at them and then you can go on to the next thing so it's important to succeed at one thing before you go on to the next and so it's a vicious circle if you don't enjoy something you don't work hard and you don't do well I saw that loads of times with reluctant law students when I was an academic. Um, but I also saw people who were enjoying it, worked hard at it and did well. Yes, and That's also you seem to be a wonderfully engaged person and full of life. And that seems to come from from that philosophy of yours to really savour what you're doing rather than be craving and obsessed with work or whatever, but to enjoy it as best you can. Well, I do enjoy it. I enjoy meeting lovely people like you. <laughs> <laughs> you say all the right things. You say all the right things. <laughs> well, um, now, what was your I, I, I know we're nearly out of time. I really am so sorry I didn't see your questions because uh, technology isn't perfect. Neither am I. And I don't know why it didn't come up in the chat bar because I was all ready for it. But there we go. And um, what was your first case? Can you remember that? My very first case? What is a barrister? Yeah. 
Oh, um, actually, I think the first case where I really had to argue something was to go along to the legal aid people and argue that somebody had a reasonable prospect of success uh, when he claimed that he had been injured as a result of going through a revolving door. Um, I don't think I succeeded. <laughs> I think that was my very first case when I had to actually argue something. Uh, my very first case was getting up and asking for bail in the Crown Court in Manchester, but that was a foregone conclusion. It was nonetheless terrifying, uh, but nevertheless, it, it was a foregone conclusion. So I, I wouldn't regard that as my first case. No, I think. Well, they let you out. <laughs> <laughs> For once, I can pick you up on precision of speech. <laughs> a rare moment. Um, an interesting question that I'm going to leave it with because I'm looking at the clock. Um, Eilish Barry from the Free Legal Advice Centre says, can you say how important civil legal aid is to be able to access justice? And that's a whole huge area, accessing justice. But I think it's a very important one in terms of equality. Well, of course, it's very important. Uh, and uh, we have had a grave reduction in the amount of public funding for legal services of all kinds, not just representation in court, but in many ways more important, initial advice and initial help, telling somebody what they are, what, you know, what, what they should be having, lifting the phone to the local authority to say, look, the reason this person's late with their rent is that you haven't paid them their housing benefit or whatever, solving the problem before it has to get to court. And they've taken away a huge amount of that in civil cases, as well as, of course, the representation in court. Uh, and that's had a very damaging effect mm. on the litigants and also, of course, on everybody, whether they litigate or not. Uh, and on the courts who are being faced with many, many more people who are representing themselves, which is difficult for the people who are doing that. But it's also difficult for the judges who are having to try and conduct a fair trial uh, in those much more testing circumstances. Yes, it's important. As you say, with your determination, and um, I think that's a suitable note to end on. And thank you so much for giving us so much of your time, because I know everybody wants to interview you, especially now that you've stepped down from the Supreme Court and you've been very generous. You really have been with your time and we really greatly appreciate that. And it's been a real pleasure to meet you. I hope you can, I can buy you a cup of coffee or more when you're in Dublin sometime. We'd all love to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emer and Lady Hale. That was uh, really quite inspiring and fun. Um, I'd like to reiterate um, and express my gratitude to you both to uh, coming along this evening. And I suppose I, I also wish to give a huge amount of thanks to the force that is uh, Aoife Kinnerney, uh, who is our event coordinator supreme for her incredibly hard work in the lead up to this evening and to herself and Melissa for um, for supporting us tonight. And also my final thanks to uh, Adamar Gallagher, without whom uh, my committee would not be half as efficient as it is. So thank you all for joining us this evening. I guess, ihoi.